Hi, and welcome to the Red Tunic Podcast, a podcast where I look to rediscover what makes gaming fun and enjoyable by having positive conversations with those related to the industry. My name is Link, and today I'm joined by Anton Hand, VR developer at Rust Limited, creative lead on hot dogs, horseshoes, and hand grenades. Hi, Anton. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Well, that's great to hear. And no, thank you so much for, for making time to, to talk with me. It's always a pleasure. And I'm, you know, as always, I'm really appreciative of, of your time. So, Anton, before we get started, would you mind maybe telling, telling me and your listeners a little bit about yourself for those that might not know exactly who you are? Sure. Well, I am, I'm an independent game designer and developer uh, working at uh, Rust Limited, which is a company that uh, I started with my three best friends in the world. Um, we, uh, we originally had uh, sort of, we met back at, uh, at the University of Buffalo back when we were all a combination, a sort of a mixture of students and, uh, and teachers. And uh, originally started making art together and doing then doing contract work together and then becoming a game studio. So we are we are very much a, uh, a group of, you know, an extended family. Uh, and we uh, we get to work on a game together, which is, you know, what more could one ask for? You know, and that's that's great to hear, you know, being able to work with, as you put it, your your best friends and continue to work with your best friends. And yeah, getting to do something that you all enjoy, that's, you know, that's pretty fantastic as well, especially with, with your game, uh, Hot Dogs, Horseshoes, and Hand Grenades. And I apologize in the future if I say it wrong. I'll probably just say 3H to make it simple. It's, it, it, tends, it actually goes by H3 for short. So you H3, sorry that. about that. No worries. That is what I'll do. Um, but yeah, you know, it's pretty fantastic that you, know, you were all able to come together through different means. You know, as you said, students, uh, teachers, what have you, to, to make the game. And, you know, I, I have had the experience of, or the joy, I should say, of getting to play your game. Um, I personally don't have a VR headset, but one of my friends does. And when I convinced him, or bribed him really with pizza, to let me come over and, you know, play VR games for, for an afternoon or what have you, uh, your game was one of the first ones I, I insisted on trying. Because the idea of it was was absolutely fantastic uh and i say that in the sense of just the the um the mix of real life physics or what have you for using interacting with with weaponry and such but then the how do i say uh, the nonsense of shooting hot dogs and whatnot right um it was I had a blast playing it is really what I'm what I'm trying to get to. So I'm I'm glad that you guys were were able to 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 make something that uh, I hope you all realize how much fun people have with, you know? Always glad to hear it. And it's very much it's it's a piece that is an expression of all of our unique senses of humor and our sort of relationship to the absurd. So And you know that's I can always appreciate uh absurd humor um it's my life at least kind of how i get by with things in that i spend most of my time uh being amused by absurdity only because the alternative would be um a complete downward spiral into you know horror and terror as it all unwinds so can very much appreciate the absurdity 
Um, I do have a question, though. Of course. And this is based on, you know, seeing what you guys have been working on um, for for the game moving forward and such. But why hot dogs? <laughs> so the the name of the game originally just just before before there were even hot dogs envisioned as being actually in the game as characters sort of stemmed from, you know, just the way that we tend to ideate as a group tends to come oftentimes originates in wordplay and playing around with ideas and so as we had been doing those first sets of experiments in vr which was very oriented on throwing things like a a, a hand grenade was one of the first things uh in my testing scene that i had gotten operational in the early days before the project even had a name uh we had the you know the there was there's that that idiom involving uh, close only counts ex uh, in horseshoes and hand grenades. And we thought that could be theoretically <laughs> like a fun center of a title. And so we were thinking about like, what would make alliterative sense to be paired with horseshoes and hand grenades. And so we were just thinking about the theme space of the game game is like, you know, of, of horseshoes as being the sort of like quintessential summer lawn game um, and the fact that the game was going to be very much centered around firearms, sort of playing around with Americana and was thinking like grilling, like that's what goes with horseshoes, grilling out, eating hot dogs. And it's just, that's what, that was the original sort of thematic glue that came together. And as the game sort of evolved from being just a pure sandbox into a slightly more structured game that had other entities and agents in it, um, hot dogs and as a, and and meat in general became really sort of a thematic focus and this was born out of um adam our group's sort of like the and and the game's sort of lead writer and the person who's really oh, most concerned with the sort of broad spectrum meaning uh present in the project it sort of pushed forward this important theme that the game's sort of rel satirical relationship to war and combat and things would be about the the pre the, the sort of way in which the the, the structures of war uh, and like that the that the player and these entities are just sort of interchangeable meat. Um, you you are just meat. You're literally referred to as meat in some of the more sort of narrative modes of the game. And so that's how that sort of that's how the hot dogginess of the game sort of bloomed, we'll say. Wonderful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's just wonderful. Thank you so much, because <laughs> um, the the I'm almost speechless just because of how it what you said makes you know what makes narratively make sense for what you're trying to do um broader spectrum and, and such as well but it's just wonderful thank you i find it absolutely amusing that <laughs> that it came about because of the you know close enough and you know wanting to 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 have the the alliteration in the name or what have you uh just wonderful thank you for for sharing that so anton if um if you don't mind can you can you maybe explain how you got into developing and and making games now you i know you did mention or i've read um that you did uh uh modeling or what have you so um 
you know, I, I don't know if that came first or if that came later, but uh, yeah, by all means, um, please just jump right in there and, and cut me off and go. Sure. So I, I, I was a digital artist first. I mean, I was an analog artist even before then, but I got my first sort of taste of doing digital art back when my father got our first computer in our household. Um, which was actually something he got as part of doing a job. We were of small means, so a computer wouldn't have been something that I ex ever expected to even have in the house. Um, but uh, a client of, of his who was looking out for him was like, John, here's a computer. You got These are the future. You got to start learning how to use one of these. And so I got access to one at about the age of nine. And I basically, I, I think the first piece of digital art I ever made was making custom icons for his desktop with uh, an icon editor that came with the computer. And that very quickly sort of grew into an obsession for me. I, I you know, he would find, download it off of Wares sites, every art program available at the time and was just like, eh, hey, try this, see if you like Kid Picks, um, Microsoft Fine Artist. Uh, things along that lines, but eventually, especially because of the cartoons that were on at the time, Reboot, Transformers, Beast Wars, and such, early 3D stuff was what absolutely captured my imagination. And so I started doing 3D art in a program called Caligari True Space around when I was 10. It was very rudimentary because I didn't have anyone to teach it to me. The, the tome-like manuals for these applications were much more like documentation for them in that none of the, none of the material that came with these apps uh, taught you any technique. It was much more like, this is what this button does as described by an engineer. And so when I look back at how much progress I was actually able to make in those early years, it wasn't much because I had no referent on how to actually make models and shapes and things like that. Um, but I enjoyed it all the same. And that interest, I originally thought, uh, you know, throughout, like, say, high school, that I wanted to be a 3D animator. That was what I was really into between movie CG, cinematics, and video games and such. And then when I got to college, the reality at that time of what being an animator was going to be like as a job really started to register. The sort of like, well, you're going to be keyframing the finger joints of one of the like M&M's characters for a 30 second M&M's ad sort of thing. Like I lived on the wrong side of the country to ever like go work on a blizzard cinematic. So that was never happening. And I sort of fell out of love with it as a result. And, but thankfully around that time, um, there was actually a, a computer science instructor at the university of Buffalo who was like, you know what you actually there's a different department here at the university that I think has something you'd be into. Um, and they, it was a part of the digital media studies program at UB that had a low cost virtual reality system designed for artists to use that was run by uh, Josephine Anstey and Dave Pape. And I got access to that and that blew my mind to chunky bits. It was like absolutely life-changing experience. And that was, it was like we're, and we're not talking about like head-mounted display VR here. We're talking about like a rear projection, 
like single projection screen with two projectors behind it with polarized lenses. You'd put on uh, glasses that made it so that each of your eyes only saw the light from one of those two projectors. But it had magnetic hand and head tracking similar to our sort of current Rev of VR. The graphics were very primitive compared to <laughs> anything. Um, but it was it was absolutely life changing, and that was that was the moment that I I knew what I wanted to do with my life was interactive media in some form. So, really, from there, it's it was much more. I I, I didn't necessarily get right into making what you'd consider sort of a game developer, but I've sort of like I dabbled across for about ten years, different forms. I did VR architectural visualization. Um, I was very into Second Life for years and had several <laughs> Second Life businesses. Uh, yeah, it sounds ridiculous, but long before all of this like digital asset, this and that that everyone was talking about, I supported myself from making shoes that don't exist in a, you know in in Second Life and doing. I did architectural work. I taught classes in SL. Um, it was really my life until I went. It was it was only through beginning to meeting the the other rusty guys and us beginning to do art games together, like artwork that used the gaming media as a form that really pulled my focus towards games as such. Um, and we did that really as a creative practice together. I went to grad school and it was post that experience and post coming out to California to all live in one place out here. Um, that sort of like my life became about games and with the sort of big first wave of HMD VR, you know, we had an opportunity to actually put out a product and then the past six years of working on, on that weird hot dog game uh, has, has transpired. And that's how, that's how I find myself here. So that is absolutely fantastic. Just the, the journey that you described. So thank you for sharing that. And I, 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 well, not exactly the same. I think I and many others can probably relate to the realization when you're faced with what you think is your dream or what something is very similar to your dream. And then it ends up being, as you said, keyframing the M&M's big chunky hot dog fingers as they you know grab an m&m or whatever and realizing that's really not what you want to do or how you know that will really quickly not be the thing that you can do for the rest of your life you know yep absolutely um as well as that's fantastic not fantastic it's it's amazing to hear that you were starting and exploring vr when VR was that thing that like you would see in in the movies from like the early 90s or the late 90s or what have you where they had it set up like well like you described with with all of that stuff and because I, I personally you know while I was aware of that I still typically hear VR and immediately just think of a, a, a HUD on your head or a whatever a, a set of screens on your head with with everything else and I personally forget that it existed as it did or as you were you know as you had to learn about or use so that's that's awesome that you know that that's where you got to start and got to experiment and and see uh, it coming to fruition you know 
Yeah, and the thing is, we actually had an HMD as well um, that was, like, heavy, bulky, and it was super narrow field of view, and I think each eye was something like 320 by 240 pixels or something like that. It was headache-inducing, and you very quickly got neck strain because your eyes had to... It was, like, it was basically like looking at the world through a pair of toilet paper rolls. Um, and so at that time, like the HMD was a curiosity. It was cool and fun, but a cave setup, even a single screen cave setup was so much more immersive. And especially because you could have other people there, even though the projection wasn't correct from their perspective, they could still see and participate in the experience of what was, um, what was there. And yeah, and you know, I, I can definitely understand you know being able to share that experience because for those that haven't had you know the the joy of actually trying vr uh you know with the full from their perspective as you put it you know being able to see things normally or properly uh being able to at least view it on on a screen or what have you and see what they're trying to do or what ha really wrong ways to try and phrase this but being able to you know participate as you said is is fantastic because you get an idea and you can you can you can see it and you can also just enjoy the the sheer insanity of what the tech is allowing to happen you know yeah so anton with that in mind based on your experience you know starting with uh, modeling and, and animating and, and, and all the way to, to where you are now. Is there any experience that, or sorry, is there any advice you might be able to give to those looking to get into the industry? I mean, that's, it's difficult. Like, even when we say the industry, that's a pretty broad spectrum at this point. And so at the end of the day, I can mainly, I, I feel most comfortable talking specifically to the people who um you know are coming from the direction of the sub-discipline that i have the most lifetime experience with which is 3d art for games and to those people i would have to say that the the advice that i give is that there are certain areas that the educational structures for that discipline tend to completely lack that are really, really important to excelling and standing out relative to the many, many, many other people who are fighting for the exact same sort of job that you're interested in. Um, and the, the, the sort, those sorts of sub areas that I emphasize over and over again uh, to people is one, becoming a software autodidact as fast as possible. Most of the programs that prepare 3D artists for the games industry are focused on a single tool chain and you learn that tool chain in a context that's very easy to learn that a tool chain, which is like you have someone to ask questions and they probably have some books and YouTube videos, but the quicker that you can become the sort of person who can just looks at a new piece of software that you have to learn as, as a tiny speed bump, the more flexible and more, the more job secure you will be in the long run because all of this software changes over time you won't be using the same thing that you're using now five years from now, or it certainly won't be in the same combination. The sort of second category that I definitely put out there is that 
when you are actually working in, especially at a, say, a studio that doesn't have just cash coming out of every orifice, um, you will frequently be work doing things quote unquote the wrong way because it's the most time effective way based upon goals and resources. So being able to work imperfectly is really important. Not just that whole sort of like 80 percenting something, but learning how to 80 percent, 60 percent, 40 percent and 20 percent things and learning what things you can get away with doing good enough work that is done very, very rapidly and then focus emphasizing the stuff that gets more attention. Um, and then the sort of third category is learning how to work on and with assets that you did not make yourself. If you talk to any indie 3D artist, especially, who is like on a sort of small team, many of those projects nowadays manage to fill out their full content spectrum through licensed assets, whether that's something coming from an outsourcing studio, whether that's something coming off of a marketplace, or just something that was already in the project before you joined as an employee, learning how to be able to take a quote unquote done asset and perform surgery on it to change it into like we're like that needs to have two more buttons on it or that needs to not be that color and shape or we got a bunch of assets but they have all this trademarked and copyrighted text in all of their texture channels and you need to remove all of those without messing up the surrounding texture information all of those things are incredibly important to learn, and none of those things are taught at any school program I've seen. And those are the those are the skills that are going to make you indispensable, um, because in a big way, you become a fixer at that point. You become someone who isn't just doing work and producing assets. You become a person who can solve problems that other people have. So that's that's the core of my advice in terms of people who are looking to separate themselves from the rest of the crowd. So thank you for, for sharing that. And, you know, I, well, well, I am not in the same field. Uh, now I am a programmer. Uh, I have experience as a, as a designer and much of what you're saying, I think I can, I think many people can appreciate even from, you know, not the strict same, you know, uh, path that you took but it, it all makes a lot of sense because you know one of the things that that you said that really resonated with me um, was when I went to school for design the main focus was you know you have the brief you have the spec you go to go do it and it's kind of a safe place to to experiment but at the same time it's a controlled environment and you know you're not going to learn how to do a lot of the kind of dirty work um, that you're going to have to do once you're really out in the field. Like you said, going in and taking taking text off of something because it's it's not it's copyrighted or it's not uh, it's not applicable or it's not whatever 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 or working with someone else's files. You know, none of that is covered and I think that's a a really good set of advice. Uh, you know, everything you said, I think all of that's a really good set of advice because it's it's things that you otherwise would learn after you're out the door and you have to learn it at the same time and same speed as everyone else and as you said when you're trying to or i'm paraphrasing mind you but as you said when you're trying to like get ahead of the crowd and whatnot you you want those you want those techniques you want those skills that let you be ahead of that crowd and you know i just think that's wonderful advice so thank you for sharing that 
My pleasure. Now, Anton, you, you had mentioned that you got your first PC at nine. I don't know if you would have been playing games elsewhere before then, or if that was would have also been when you first got to maybe play video games. But what was your favorite game as a child? And what made that game, you know, your your favorite? So I got into, like, I played some NES games as a kid, but it was one of those, like, even though my parents sprung for an NES, I only ended up having, like, three game, three or four games for it over the life of it, because they're all so expensive back then. But for, for the PC, the, for, the thing that really grabbed me that, once again, sort of dovetails with this early obsession with 3D was the game Descent 2. Because, like, my, my just because of parents and content censoring, like, I didn't have Doom. I didn't have the really a any sort of games that were gory, but spaceships and dark caverns were okay. And so Descent 2, which if, if you've never played it, or for anyone listening who hasn't, you are basically in this space, you're a mercenary in this spaceship that has been sent into this series of like asteroid mines out in the solar system that essentially the mining robots they have lost control of and are attacking people so you have to go into these mines rescue some miners onto your ship destroy all of the malfunctioning robots and then blow up the reactor that's in the center of the mine and escape before it blows up it is so it's a six degrees of freedom game so you'd have like oh, we had a simple joystick uh, that you played it with, sort of joystick plus keyboard, um, which was a bit much, honestly, for like a 10-year-old to play. It was it was very challenging for me, and I think that's one of the other things that really held my attention about it, is that it asked a lot of you as a kid to play. Um, but it was, it was the sort of labyrinthine space. It was fundamentally a horror game. It's just a sci-fi horror game instead of a like spooky blood and ghosts horror game and fantastic soundtrack um, that if you like, if you look at who like, like one of the members of Skinny Puppy uh, did a bunch of tracks for it. So the music was incredibly evocative because it, was, it wasn't like 8-bit music. It was full CD tr audio tracks that played while the game played. And so just the entire immersive audiovisual experience, it just, it, it, it captured my imagination and I played it all the time. And a lot of the work, like the, the ship from descent was one of the first complex things I ever tried to 3d model myself. And I still think to this day, a lot of the ways in which I think about space and what I find compelling in a virtual space are still informed by initial loves and initial, you know, evocative things that struck me all the way back then. So thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I, I too had some experience with Descent, not as much as you clearly. Uh, and I, you know, I, I agree completely that, you know, the, the, the amount of controls and such for, for games uh, like Descent or from that era, I think that was one of the weird, um, weird pros of them in that, you know, there was so much you could do and so much you had to, had to do to, to play it appropriately that, you know, it was it was charming in its own way. And, you know, it's it's great hearing you describe it as you did, because, you know, like I said, I I didn't have much experience with it. I played maybe the demo and that would have been it. But, you know, I 
I've heard positive things from other people and you know you the, the way you painted it as well it makes me kind of want to try and figure out a way to play it uh nowadays and I only say it that way because it's it's a relatively old game and I have no idea how if there's a, an easy um easy way all, to play it safely you know all of the all of those games are still maintained with modern renderers um by by fan communities it's really quite incredible especially like the free space games that came out of them descend free space 2 in many ways is still like the bar when it comes to a dramatic presentation linear storyline 6dof simulator sort of thing and really like you know what it's as i say that and was thinking about descent 2 i think the other thing that's really that I don't think I realized until now was how much my early tastes were shaped by games that were combining the design and control ethos and complexity that came out of like Milsim games, the sort of like deep, unforgiving, this is as complicated as doing something in real life games combined with fiction. So instead of having them in like a military context, like you're in a spaceship in outer space sort of thing. So I think that combo of things, I mean, still really defines my creative interests uh, to this day. You know, that's that's fantastic to hear. And, you know, I I can definitely understand what you're saying and how that would how you would get there uh, after, you know, having played your game uh, when when I did play it. I, when I did have the ability to try it, one of the first things that we did, we being my friend and I, was trying to manipulate the the guns, trying to like actually load them, use them, you know, everything. And he had only himself been able to figure out so many of them. And mm -hmm. it was a absolute joy to realize just how realistic it was to the extent that uh i forget i forget what gun it was but i was playing around with it in in the game and my stepfather actually owns the same gun and immediately when i you know the first time i saw it i was able to just do what i did in the game with it which was you know know what needed to get done how to you know load it unload it uh all of that fun stuff which the movies in my mind make things far easier than they really are you know yep and that's i mean one of one of the interest points from the very beginning of this project in terms of playing around with sort of firearm operational simulation was was to, to you know like games games like despite the omnipresence of firearms in video games they are deeply homogenized because we are interacting with them through such an abstracted, standardized interface. Like, the design needs of the standard first-person shooter is that you've got four to six buttons, and those four to six buttons do the exact same thing no matter what power or object or weapon you have in front of you. Whereas, like, all of the interesting nuance that comes from, I mean, if you look at the average firearm, they're all doing roughly the same thing. They take a metal cartridge filled with a propellant that, you know, that deflagrates and fires a piece of metal through the air. 
and they all just do it a different way and with like all of the nuance between them and in real life also they mostly sound the same sort of thing more than most video games ever represent um all of the nuance all of the real interest beyond just aesthetic variation is in the operational details and those are all paved flat by almost every video game that has firearms in them and so that has always been one of my driving design and content uh interests in h3 is to celebrate all of the interesting differences uh in those things and to be able to evaluate them next to each other and be like wow this is who thought this was a great idea? I think I think so. One of the most enjoyable th types of firearms to add to the game is one that's terrible, that just has a like, who would put this switch here, or why does this operate this way, um, sort of thing, and getting to experience uh, both good and bad ideas, um, and uh, and and unreliable ones. Yes, you know I. I, I, what you just said resonated really well because some of the weapons that I did try when, when we were playing H3 was, I, I forget, I forget what one it is, but in, you know, from a, from a design point when I was younger, like, oh yeah, this is an awesome gun. And then I read more about it and, you know, universally everyone hates it because of just its function and getting to try that in the game <laughs> to put it, to put it best was I was sitting there trying to figure out how to use it. And what ended up happening was I just threw it at a hot dog and grabbed a pistol that worked. And it was, you know, it, it was absolute mindless fun to just go, well, screw this gun. And you realize in that moment, it was more effective for me just to throw it at something than it was to try and use it. So I, I understand, like, I, the, the methodology or what have you behind the, the you know, what you guys are doing with, with H3 is I love it because, you know, it's, it's absolutely what I enjoy getting to do. And I, you know, it's, I'm glad to hear that from the get-go or maybe not from the get-go, but you know, that that is a, a primary focus that, that you guys have. Absolutely. Now I do want to talk about this. I do want to ask you this one uh, because you had indicated that you would like to discuss this question as well as you kind of mentioned um, the, the military sim, uh, games are just the you know the the complex nature of them and games like that so is there a game that you enjoy whether it's related to to this lead-in or not i apologize if it isn't uh, but is there a game that you enjoy that you feel just doesn't get enough credit absolutely um i spent i spent a good amount of uh you know of last year ranting about it um which is a game called escape from tarkov which Tarkov is interesting, you know, just from the beginning in that it doesn't really cleanly fit into a single genre. It is it is simultaneously like a milsim shooter, an MMO, a uh, a sort of like, you know, like 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 looter shooter in in certain ways. Um and uh, again, like a game that is entirely about sort of like eco play, you know. So, for anyone who hasn't played it, in super short, the idea is that you are playing as a uh, a, a PMC soldier in a in in basically like a a Russian province that has sort of like basically become an a, an anarchic war zone 
uh, between this sort of like Western PMC corporation and a, uh, and a native one. And there are sort of like independent scavengers that are also in the battle space. And you play it by equipping yourself with equipment that you have that you lose if you die in the actual game space. You go, you get certain missions, and you go into one of a set of, it's like six or seven levels. You end up spawning somewhere random in that space, and you've got a certain amount of time, somewhere between like 20 minutes and 45 minutes, to complete whatever your objectives are, and you can decide what those are. You can choose to do missions, you can choose to hunt other players, you can choose to hunt AI agents in the space. You can just lay in a bush and listen to the rain fall on you and listen to distant battles and learn about the flow of what transpires in the level over that period of time. And then you have to successfully get to an exit point, which is usually on the opposite side of the level than where you entered. If you don't leave the level manually before that time runs out, you also just die and lose all of the equipment on you. So... It's this survival of it's like it's it's a PvPVE MMO that is deeply survival of the fittest is has as much detail as any milsim shooter has involving its weapon operation, uh, a deep body simulation. You take location based damage you can bleed there's multiple types of food and drink there's bandages and sort of like splints um and it is as unforgiving as of a multiplayer game as I have ever played in my life. And it, as a result, it is the, the level of sort of like residence in the virtual space that you feel you have. Your embodiment is so specific and so deep and so broad. And the, the amount of information that you have to parse very, very rapidly in it to survive is pretty overwhelming. It's borderline impossible to learn how to play the game on your own. It is very much designed, if you can have someone to Sherpa you into the experience, that's gonna be, you're much more likely to have a good time instead of just playing for 20 minutes at a time, dying, and then and being like, well, now what? Um, but I love it precisely because it defies standard genre um, classification that like, like, like something like I, I see it as being a conceptual cousin to something like descent free space in that what it is attempting to do is it's taking this very, very deep set of simulations and then is plugging them into a more fictional context that is a lot uh, that, that really allows you to experience the full expressivity range of those simulations and emergent situations that come out of those simulations colliding with each other. So thank you for explaining Escape from Tarkov like that. You know, I've, I've, I've been aware of the game. I've never played it. I've, you know, uh, been interested enough to know the, the bare, the bare minimums of everything you said. And, the way you put it, it it has me far more interested in it than I than think I've ever been before. So, uh, thank you for that because the game, uh, the way you described it, with the the way you approach it, or the way um, I'm trying to think of the right words for that, uh, 
the way that you see it and experience it, it sounds like a much more enjoyable game than I initially wrote it off as based on like the surface level of what it is. So thank you for and that. I of course. And I think really at the core, like if you're like, what's the single, the, like the simulation is all important, but I think the thing that's most interesting to me at the sort of top level at meta structure is this, like I, as, as I've gotten older, the things that interest me most in terms of game spaces are things are, are ones that aren't prescriptive. You know, the fact that everyone is entering into a Tarkov level with a very self-determined goal, all of which could be theoretically valid within the whole the whole system's expression, and that you don't know what everyone else is trying to do in the first place, and you don't know whether your goals conflict with anyone else's at any given moment, is what creates such an interesting situation that it's 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 the simulation and the world first and then you pour your intent into it and there aren't i don't think there are many multiplayer games that are like that um that's a rare thing you know i i absolutely agree that i don't think i've ever come across a multiplayer game that really sort of just goes Here's the tools, and the, in this case, the tools would be like what you drop into the level with, so to say, and the rest of it just being, yeah, get to the get to the point, and anything between point A and point B or entry and exit is completely up to you. I don't think I've seen a game like that because in most cases, uh, from my understanding, games of similar nature are usually centered around being the last one alive or um, being the the group or what have you that gets the the MacGuffin and gets to the extraction point with said MacGuffin and whatnot. And, you know, to, to know that, that that's all that the game is, I think that's a really fantastic way to just kind of let you determine and define your own experiences based around just what you go in with, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's why its closest corollaries in that way are a very, very short list of MMOs that have really privileged individual players' ability to define the shape of their experience. And so that's things like EVE Online and really the original Ultima Online sort of thing. Like, we have, we have, we have put, especially post-World of Warcraft, we have, we have turn so many of these multi-user games into pick which funnel you would like to walk down as being the breadth of experience of 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 that you're allowed to define um and steer your experience and it's so nice to find something that is much more like an open plane yeah definitely and you know I, it, until this moment i actually forgot ultima exists which is you know absolutely horrible seeing as that was such a, a genre-defining uh, setup. You know, uh, you know, games like it are few and far between. Um, you know, Ultima, uh, the Star Wars uh, Galaxy, I believe it was. Um, well, not exactly the same. Um, or at the end, it might not be the exact same. But what have you? You know, the the few and far between of those is is way too wide. Given that those can be some really wild games with some really great core gameplay elements with some you know great design philosophy behind them that like you said 
we've sort of just lost due to the whole nature of, uh, you know, you, you just picking a funnel and deciding how, like what funnel to go through instead of forgoing the funnel altogether and just meandering about to do whatever you would like. And, you know, in, in the Ultima case, my friend's favorite way to play Ultima, as weird as it is, was to find cats and beat up cats to raise the unarmed combat for reasons I never understood. But, you know, that's that's not really something that exists in a lot of games. You know, it's it's the ability to do whatever you want to just achieve whatever goals you feel are important, if, if that makes any sense. Of course, because the but because it's much more important to optimize you know to 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 puppet your users as much as possible to optimize revenue return you know the points of these large multi-users environments more and more are not for your entertainment therefore the maximal return for a set of shareholders extracted from your time so yes you know and exactly uh the the whole approach where um, uh, the whole, I don't know how to phrase it appropriately or properly, so I'm just gonna, gonna wing it, but the whole approach for a lot of games where it's, you know, just a capitalistic entity trying to benefit from it and create the, um, most easily, um, most easily, um, absorbed, uh, enjoy, the most easily absorbed, let's, let's go with that, screw it, uh, experience where while not inherently wrong on the point of the game because you know I don't want to I don't want to speak ill of games that have streamlined things to make it easier to enjoy because you know that's that's you know well it might be due to x it's not you know causation and correlation sorry that's where I'm going with that um but you know I I understand completely and the the uh, the capitalistic mindset to just try and push that is is, is kind of is a blight on on gaming and on a lot of things and you know having having focus on doing things and enjoying things without it having to constantly push for a uh, monetistic return or what have you um you know is 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 great i apologize i'm i'm dangerously into the realm of things that i am not capable of, of talking about as i'm kind of certain it's shown from uh, my my bumbling around there but i understand what you're saying and yes I, I i agree and it's it's nice to know that you know sometimes there are games and things that aren't 100 driven by just what's going to be the most uh, revenue increasing if that makes sense everything that i just said yep absolutely so anton i don't want to take up too much more of your time However, I did want to ask this one, um, and depending on where we go with this, it might have a follow-up if you still have the time for me, but what kind of game would you like to create if you were given the freedom? And, you know, does that have anything to do with your favorite genre that we've kind of, I'm assuming your favorite genre that we kind of just discussed? Well, it's funny because, like, I definitely, I would say that the things that I love to play are not necessarily the things that I always love to make. And those have sort of shifted a bunch over time. Like I love making really sandbox oriented gameplay. I don't really like playing it as much because the time that I would expend playing it, I would rather just be 
making it. You know what I mean? But in terms of what I think, like I, in, in, in many ways, I have all the freedom that I could ever, I'm, I'm actually indie. We don't have a publisher sort of thing. Like we, we, we march to our own tune. Um, but the, 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 I, I feel that the thing that constrains me, of course, is that sort of relationship of market fit and likelihood of revenue return relative to, you know, the amount of effort that something would take. Like I would love to make, you know, a, I would love to make a very, very deep immersive sim, which of course, if, if there is, if there's a bottomless fit pit lined with molasses as a game in game genre form, it is the immersive <laughs> sim in terms of the, the amount of work that that can end up taking because you're talking about defining a significantly deeper sort of standard of verbs and interaction ontology to begin with. And then having those things cross interact and having to define all of those things, it can very quickly explode, uh, you know, super linearly in terms of effort to, to make even very simple things work consistently and make sense and the other frankly put is just a genre that i feel is really on its way out is really a dying genre which is the single player roughly linear story driven first person shooter like part of me would love to just make a half-life like um sort of thing but the the reality is that the amount of resources and like it's about the total development time and resources per average user minute of playing a game is a terrible return like it takes it takes a long time to make 30 good minutes of a linear story driven first person shooter and the average user is going to play those 30 minutes once and then they're going to be like so where's more content sort of thing and because of the fact that the market that we're in the like we we're we're in a um we're in a market right now where um you know where a lot of the driving trends of the gaming community are like a game that is no longer still getting content is a dead game immediately um and that people want people want forever games in larger and larger amounts it's never been more challenging i think to release a, a one and done linear narrative game especially as an indie um because you are especially because you're coming at things from a non-traditional standpoint from a marketing word of mouth if if you have a game that people are engaging with a little bit every week they slowly spread that through their network of friends sort of thing if you have a game that you play once sort of thing someone goes it they plays it play it once they uninstall it it never shows up in their friends list people again people don't see them playing it etc you don't get the viral network effects that get you know forever games that like a builder game like satisfactory gets or valheim or a multiplayer game etc so i i think it's with the nature of the market and the platforms and just the way that people consume media now the sort of game that I think I would really adore making has, it's a bad bet, you know, with, with our notoriety with H3, we could still probably make that a moderate success, I would think, but it's, it would be a very scary prospect to make. And so those are the ways 
you know. But if someone just was like, here's umpteen million dollars, make what's in your heart sort of thing, it would probably be a Half-Life like or a Half-Life 2 like um, in structure. You know, and I, I've never actually thought about the amount of work that has to go into into something like that, because you're absolutely correct when it comes to a game like Half-Life, where it was, uh, I don't even think it's arguable, uh, what with Half-Life, where it was the game that said a first-person shooter can be narratively driven. Um, the amount of work to craft each and every interaction, you know, that 30-minute hallway or, or what have you, would would absolutely be a mind-blowing amount of of work. And it's like it's it's one of those things where when you play some maybe some older first person shooters, uh like Doom or like Duke Nukem 3D or Shadow Warrior or what have you, those well linear, those aren't really story driven. So it's and I don't mean this any kind of insult to anyone that makes these kind of games now or has in the past or will in the future. But it's, you know, a very different beast to have a uh, level by level, you know, arena shooter, so to say, versus a strongly story driven, you know, with story beats and plot points that are a little deeper than um, hell has invaded Mars or or aliens have invaded Earth or what have you. Right. Um, where. <laughs> And saying that now makes me realize, you know, that that kind of is all Half-Life is um, in a really rudimentary sense. But it's it's more the the minute to minute or chapter to chapter gameplay, so to say, that I never really considered just how much work would need to go in to to define that chapter to chapter gameplay, uh, even outside of, you know, the arena to arena or what have you. And that's, you know, absolutely uh I understand absolutely where you're coming from with that. And, uh, you know, now the realization that just how much of a, um, how much of a undertaking financially and um, non-financially even that that kind of project would be. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that's probably the best way to, close that question out is with an exasperated yeah so thank you for that now and um i don't want to i don't want to take up too much more of your time however if you have a few more minutes i'd love to maybe ask you a question that might not be gaming related sure awesome so thank you and you know i apologize because this question is a little rough it's you know it's kind of new and i'm still kind of working it out but outside of games what other hobbies do you enjoy? Like, what do you do that, what do you do now to, to relax that might not be gaming related? I love to cook. You know, cooking for me is, is, is everything that the day-to-day -day work on a game and the, the specific ty types of disciplines that I have to engage with isn't. It's, it's, it's for me, especially the way that I cook, the way I approach being in the kitchen is is a discipline of like pure improvisation. I don't really use recipes. Like I'll look up a recipe in terms of like, well, someone fried X ingredient, what temperature did they use, et cetera. But I, I don't hold the recipe with me. 
it's always I'm trying to adapt an approach and play and and avoid <laughs> rule-based systems as much as possible um, because so much of the work that I have to do is so meticulous and so do this 17 step process exactly like this or it will explode in your face and then now do that a hundred more times it's one of the reasons why when i cook i almost never cook the same thing ever again i'm always tweaking and iterating and sort of trying to find someplace new and i'm very very novelty driven with food and so it is it's my it's my psycho emotional refuge and the way that I recharge relative to the very specific ways that I have to use my brain for my work. And you know, that's, that's great to hear. And, you know, being able to, to the way you describe that, you know, the, the, the verses of it and how one kind of allows for more, uh, less rigidness, you know, more of a dynamic, you know, just doing things to see what happens. Um, I don't know if I misunderstood. Uh, however, I am correct in your understand or what you said, and I'm correcting my understanding. Then you know that's I, I get it completely. And you know, outside of the the bare minimum basics, so to say, like you know what temperature you should maybe cook meat at uh, to make sure it's or cook meat too or what have you. Um, but outside of everything else, kind of does allow you to just sort of not be as constrained just to see what may or may not work. And I apologize if I misunderstood completely oh, yeah, no. the point you were making. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And and the thing is, it's one of the reasons why even as a sort of subgenre of cooking, the part that I like to focus the most on is on making and building sauces because those are the least about, oh, here's a set of rules of how this is supposed to work sort of thing that you refer to. And it's significantly more something that you can lay, iteratively layer and play with um, directly from a consistency standpoint, from a balance of flavor, from an adhesion, viscosity, all of those things. It's something that you can learn and through doing um, without having to like stop and you know, and, 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 and a sort of like, well, we're just going to keep moving forward with it. Like, oh, now it's too sour and it's too thin. What are we going to do? How are we going to rescue it? That process for me is the sort of the, the exhilaration of that. That's what, that's what keeps me cooking. And, you know, I, I think everyone can relate to that, whether or not they enjoy cooking as, as much as you, but I think everyone can definitely relate to that, uh, you know, more specifically to the panic of realizing you have made something too thin or too thick or too sour. And now you're just throwing caution to the wind, so to say, just to see whatever you can do to save it. And I, you know, I, I, I think I appreciate that, that mindset. And I think many others hopefully do as well, if that makes sense. Yep. And it's, it's also, it's one of the other reasons that it is this sort of refuge for me and why it's so comforting is the like, as someone who is about to now be six whole years into a single game, the, the, the best part about cooking is whether it goes great or not, you know, 30 minutes to a couple hours later, it's done forever. There's no record of it. There's no, like, I can be like, oh, that was yummy or not. No one has to know. It's just done and over <laughs> with, and it's on to the next thing. And it's it's one of the, yeah, a necessary thing to have in one's life. 
It, yes, I, I agree completely. You know, as you were describing everything and, and the way you capped it off there, um, you know, I'll share this, whether or not it's as amusing to me as it might be to others. Uh, but I recently started making um, simple syrup, different simple syrups uh, for to go into iced coffee and what have you. That's not the important part. Um, but the last time I did it, I had a little simple syrup left. And uh, I don't know if you know this, and I'm going to butcher it, and it is what it is when I butcher this, but the fundamental base of caramel is, is a simple syrup. It's a water and sugar dissolved down. And I had looked up, to re looked up a recipe for a simple syrup in the past, and or not simple syrup, sorry, for a, for a caramel. And it's effectively just like cream, butter, and then, a, you know, water and sugar and all that fun stuff. Uh, so I just decided to try and wing it with the with the the material, the product or what have you that I had available to me um, in my apartment at that very moment. And what I can happily say is it took about 30 minutes. And at the end of those 30 minutes, it was down the drain and gone from my life forever. <laughs> so. Well, that is why I don't do baking and I don't do confections because Baking, like it's, it's, if baking is a science, cooking is, cooking is an art. And I know that's a dichotomy that isn't, isn't really true, but I, I know just enough about baking and working on anything that is primarily sugar-based like that to know that it requires way too much rigid process than I am looking to have in my life in the kitchen. You know, yes, 100%. And, you know, as I said, I... I too understand that, and I too also uh, respect the, the 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 split differences on you know how one is particularly precise and the other isn't. But you know sometimes you just throw caution to the wind and see what happens. And like you said, at the end of it, even if it's just thirty minutes, it's gone forever, and it's no longer a thing that you have to worry about. Indeed. So, Anton, as I said, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. However, if there was uh, there was something else you want to discuss, maybe a cool game, what you're doing, or something you feel more people should just be more aware of, by all means, you know, the floor is yours. As well as, please let everyone know where they can find more information about you, which I'll also be including in the episode description. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I think that's that. I think we covered everything. All, all the all the main points really quite well um uh, you know you can you can follow me on on uh on on twitter at at, at your own risk <laughs> i'm just at, at anton hand and you can of course find uh more about the uh game at h3vr.com um that should have all of the uh the necessary links about it awesome well again thank you anton for for making the time to for making the time to have this conversation with me greatly appreciated and you know if my pleasure. yeah and if there wasn't anything else i will definitely let you get back to your day sounds great awesome so thanks again anton for making the time to have this conversation with me and thank you for joining us on the red tunic podcast as well as a special thanks to ron jenkies for the use of music from the title track from road steep and if you like this podcast and want to support it and help it grow, please subscribe or follow me on Twitter at Red Tunic Podcast to receive the latest episodes and news. And be sure to share it with those you think also might enjoy it. Thanks, and until next time.